Welcome back to the program. For journalists, for historians, and for political junkies, Richard Nixon is the gift that keeps on giving. There are over 3,700 hours of Nixon tapes, and only a portion have been released and transcribed. And even as we mark this 40th anniversary of Nixon's resignation, most of us have only heard a few minutes here or there. For my guest, Luke Nichter, a professor at A&M and one of the leading experts on the Nixon tapes, it paints a picture of a cunning and controlling president, and sometimes a country astride the world. Mostly, though, it captures the White House in America and the world in a particular place and time that strangely bears little resemblance to the world as we know it today. It is my pleasure to welcome Luke Nichter to the program today. He is the co-author, along with Doug Brinkley, of the Nixon Tapes, 1971 to 1972. Luke, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. The period that you deal with, the tapes that you include in this book, 1971 to 1972, were really pre-Watergate. This is really Richard Nixon at his geopolitical best or worst, depending on your point of view. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the, there, you already mentioned the, the simply the volume of these tapes is just too big to be contained by one book. So we're going to save um, 73 and Watergate and everything else for a second book. But So here you get kind of a, a, a more pure look at how, how was the Nixon White House, how did it run day to day, really before the crisis, we say before the fall, you know, before Richard Nixon knew that he was under investigation. And yet, as we watch Nixon talk about the world, the cunning, the way he talks about foreign leaders, even the way he talks about some of the domestic issues that come up, you do get insight in so many ways to the things that ultimately led to his downfall. You do. Um, this this is, um, for many people, it's going to be a different look at Richard Nixon. I think there will be some aspects, certainly of the way he speaks and the language he uses that, that are similar to us. But um, one of the important things about this book is that, um, and I did not know this when I started this work about a decade ago, but I do now, is that all of the Watergate material and um, what became later known as abuse of government power material is only about 5 to 7 percent of the tapes. 5 to 7 percent. So nearly, uh, so just 5 to 7 percent has created uh, almost 100 percent of our uh, of our impression about Nixon and his presidency. So this first volume, we kind of go in a different direction and focus on the other 95 percent. Talk a little bit about the Nixon-Kissinger relationship, because there is a sense so often that Kissinger is, is kowtowing to Nixon. I mean, Nixon will turn to him after sort of a soliloquy about something and say, isn't that right, Henry? And, and things like that happen so often. Yeah, the Nixon-Kissinger relationship is, is obviously a, a complex one. And um, Nixon is someone you think, um, you know, probably didn't have a lot of close friends. I, I think probably B.B. Rebozo and a couple of others. You know, Nixon was some, some, you know, a person who was surrounded often with lots of assistance, but surrounded very few times with actual friends. I can't imagine Nixon being social or friendly with many of them had they not been brought into the same circumstances in the White House. Um, so it, it is a complex relationship, and sometimes you hear Nixon complaining about uh, Kissinger, about sometimes about his Jewishness when he's running foreign policy, especially in the Middle East. So it is a it is a very complex relationship. They at times they detested each other, and at times they desperately needed each other. Talk a little bit about your impression of Nixon's decision making process, because we have this public impression 
of Nixon being very organized, very thorough, very deliberate, and yet these tapes reveal a certain seat-of-the-pants quality to Nixon. Nixon, it's, it really depends on the particular subject he's discussing or making decisions about. You know, whether you like Nixon or not, whether you agree with his policies or not, it is a fairly unique way that he set up his presidency. He came into the Oval Office in 1969 basically deciding he was going to focus most of his time on a handful of issues, on Vietnam, getting us out of the war, on opening relations in China uh, with, uh, with Russia, um, with a few other subjects, Europe, NATO, and he spent uh, most of his time working on these subjects. And you see him in the tapes, this is sort of what's new in this book, getting into an unusual um, degree of specificity in these policies, I mean, down to sort of tactical military decisions. We just don't think many presidents do that. Um, so Nixon is involved there, and, and at, at the almost ex- complete exclusion of other policies. Uh, not, there's not very much domestic policy in here. There's a little bit of economic policy, the end of the gold standard. But uh, for the most part, there's a handful of issues that Nixon focuses intensely on, and he has most of his staff around him uh, focus on the same things that he's focusing on. In that sense, though, there is a very clear cause-and-effect relationship. Because Nixon is so focused on these limited number of issues, and he goes so deep into those issues that so many domestic things that happened during the Nixon presidency were, were almost just things done at the spur of the moment to get them done or because they may have had a political reason. They were not thought out, but they had far-reaching consequences. Yeah, they do. Uh, Nixon was somebody who, uh, to go into that for a second, Nixon was someone, he was a student of history, he liked to read history, uh, and occasionally he misread history, as political leaders do. He was, he was a great admirer of the, the British system of government, where you have a monarch and a prime minister. And Nixon believed that he, it took a president to run foreign policy, but that you could delegate to a presidential assistant, in this case to John Ehrlichman, head of what became known as the Domestic Council, much of the country's domestic policy. So while Richard Nixon created the, the EPA, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, Amtrak, really was, uh, many people have given him credit for being the last liberal president in the, of either political party in the sense that he used big government to transform our lives. Uh, it is still hard 40 years later. How much credit does he deserve? He obviously had a veto-proof Democratic Congress that probably would have passed these initiatives uh, anyways. It's a little bit like the debate even during the Clinton balanced budget, how much of the credit goes to the White House and how much goes to the Congress, probably in both cases. Nixon and Clinton, um, both sides uh, should share some of the credit. There's also a sense that Nixon just didn't care about some of these issues. You know, he, uh, I, some of the issues he did not care when it came to domestic policy. But this was also someone, he's one of the only uh, presidents we've ever elected to have served in the House, the Senate, as vice president, and as president. So he had served in, in all sort of four federal capacities uh, as president. And we've only done that a few times in our country's history. So I think whether he was passionate about certain domestic issues, obviously he had a pretty good background in them because as a member of the House, in the Senate, you know, he didn't have a, a whole lot of foreign policy experience until he became vice president. In your sense, and, and you've listened to so much of this, so many of these tapes, in listening to the tapes of this period, particularly as it relates to foreign policy, the Cold War, the opening of China, the Middle East, 
what were some of the new ideas, the new things that you and, and Doug Brinkley came away with in understanding Nixon? Yeah, there are a few a few moments, you know, when you're transcribing for and listening for years and years where you just have to take your headphones off and sort of reflect upon what you just heard. And you think, wow, has anyone heard this before? Have I ever seen this uh, transcribed or ever published or mentioned in another book? And there are a couple quick things that stand out. I think, first of all, the opening to China. Um, People often say, why didn't Nixon burn his tapes? He could have done that in that legal environment. The law is very different today, but back then they were considered his personal property, and he could have done that. It would have been terrible PR for, for, for him, but probably would have saved his presidency, or at least extended it longer than it was. But Nixon took a gamble with history, I think. Uh, Nixon believed that it might take 20 years, 50 years, maybe even 100 years, but that the material on the tapes regarding the opening to China, uh, getting us out of, at the time, was the longest war the country had ever been involved in, negotiations with the Russians, etc., would, would outlast, would outlive his critics, and outlive uh, the Watergate material on the tapes. And then I think, secondly, one other moment that really stands out from the tapes is um, uh, in, in 1972, of course, we now know Nixon was elected in a landslide, um, but just the year before, a few months before, that was anything but certain. In 71, his poll numbers did not look good. Uh, it did not look like he would be reelected at all, let alone in a landslide. Um, and in 71, on the tapes, he says to Henry Kissinger that things aren't going very well, and as far as you know, this is the first time this appears in our book, Kiss, uh, Nixon was willing to either resign or not to run for re-election, and he thought that if it was better for the country to go away quietly, uh, that he was willing to do that. And we're coming up on, this is August 9th, this is 40 years to, to the day that Nixon resigned, and here we have a moment earlier when he considered resigning much earlier. Talk a little bit about the cunning that's on display here, the amount of time Nixon spent whether it was with his yellow pads or in conversations with Kissinger, sort of planning and plotting and and playing this kind of geopolitical chess. There is a lot of cunning and a lot of geopolitical chess. I I think the only president in recent um, years, now we don't know this for sure because Nixon happens to be the best recorded, we have all these recordings, but the only president I can think of who had a manner of work and style, who did spend so much time kind of planning and plotting and cunning, might have been uh, President Clinton. Um, You know, I think President Nixon spent a lot of time, a deeply intellectual person, um, certainly with plenty of flaws, but had liked to spend a lot of time making a lot of notes to himself, sort of keeping him on point, keeping him on message, delegating assignments to um, to staff, you know, getting very deeply involved in the details of certain policies. So the tapes, this is one of the things that make the tapes very interesting, is it's not just a cabinet meeting and then a meeting and then another meeting and then another meeting. There's a lot of time in between these meetings where Nixon is uh, really freewheeling with his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, with Henry Kissinger. They're planning, they're thinking what if, uh, they're sort of daydreaming about what could be in terms of policy. So there's a, uh, an enormous amount of candid material here, uh, all the more so because Nixon knew the recording system existed and most of his inner circle did not. So most of the people you hear on the tapes and read in the book did not know they were being recorded at the time they were speaking. And even Nixon, you get the sense, sometimes forgot that he was being recorded. I think that's probably right. You know, there have been a few people who, over the years, including Henry Kissinger in his memoirs, who 
privately wondered, is this really a fair way to study history? One person knows he's being recorded and the others do not. Um, but what you actually see on the tapes is, is, is different. Uh, very few times is the taping system discussed. There's never a time where Nixon says, oh, well, we got that guy taped. We're going to use that against him. And in fact, what, what you see is the opposite over time. There are a couple of conversations where Nixon and Haldeman talk about, um, um, because the taping system started small. It started in a couple of locations, and Nixon liked it so much that he added more locations on over the over a couple of years. There are a couple of locations where Nixon says, well, gee, I wish we would have gotten this location taped. And I think to myself, that location is taped. I've been listening to those tapes. They seem to forget what, where, which locations are being taped, which locations are not being taped. So it's obvious to me that once the system was installed and started running, they kind of just forgot about it and let the Secret Service run it and change the tapes and everything went into the file. Talk a little bit about Nixon's vision of the world. I mean, in, in many ways, as you listen to this, as you read the transcripts of these tapes, it is so fundamentally different from the world that we live in today. There are many differences. I mean, it was 40 years ago. It was the Cold War. And in the classroom here at Texas A&M Central Texas, I teach 18, 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds, and who not only for them, I mean, um, Richard Nixon is ancient, ancient history. The Cold War is ancient history. And many of them barely have a living memory of 9-11. And that's how recent for, this is for the younger generation. But I think there are important lessons here, even 40 years later, for, for policymakers today. And, and maybe there's someone in the White House or in Washington paying attention. Um, you know, for example, the relationship with China. I think the jury is still out on, on whether this is good, whether this is bad for the United States as much today as it, as it was then. It's a very complex relationship. And I think, secondly, a, a very contemporary issue today is, uh, you know, Richard Nixon learned the hard way. Uh, he did not plan on opening relations with China first. He first sought better relations with Russia, had a very difficult leader at the time, said a lot of things publicly, threatened its neighbors, and you think um, it looks a little bit like Russia today. And Richard Nixon learned the hard way that when you're having difficulty in negotiating with the Russians, um, why not reach out to their large neighbor to the east, China? And when you improve relations with China, it, it, there's some effective leverage that you can use against Russia. And so maybe this is a lesson today that uh, it's time to lean a little closer to China, learn the lessons of Nixon if you want to see, see improvements in relations with Russia. Yet looking at the world at that time, the world is so much more siloed than it is today. I mean, even beyond the Cold War and, and, and kind of the bilateral way in which the world was viewed, the fact of the matter is that, that everything was just more compartmentalized at that time. The world certainly seems um, a lot uh, simpler then. I mean, today, uh, power and threats and terrorism are much more diffuse. I mean, then you had two political parties, Republicans and Democrats, who had much more ideological overlap. There was a lot more bipartisanship in Washington. And in part, it's because both parties knew and understood that the main threat came from the Soviet Union. Today, threats to this nation come from all over, from our borders, through foreign policy, through nuclear weapons, through terrorism. And the world is just more diffuse today. It's much more complex today. And I think the threats to our nation are, are much less sort of tangible and less clear to us today. It's interesting to look for the through lines that run from the actions that Nixon took, the obviously the, the ending of the war in Vietnam and, and, and the opening with China, relations with Russia, 
to see the through lines that run through some of the issues today and the influence that Nixon's actions 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, have had on the way the world has evolved to today? It has. I think Nixon just had, he in many ways was very poorly suited to be a president, but he was very well suited to be a master of foreign policy. One wonders, had he been a sort of Secretary of State or a National Security Advisor instead of President, whether that would have been a better fit for his, his talents and also his personality. I, I think Nixon just has a certain mind that has a talent and uncanny ability to read the world. I think it's why Bill Clinton, um, early in his presidency, Nixon had already passed 80 years of age in 93 and before he died in 94, was concerned consulting with a Democratic President Bill Clinton on the collapse of the Soviet Union, a transition to a Democratic Russia under Yeltsin, consulting with him on China, you know, um, not just in the 70s, but in the 90s, and I think even even today, Nixon just has a mind that has an ability to read the world, and it's a rare talent that politicians have. And And you see an element of exactly what you're talking about when you look at Clinton's eulogy at, at the Nixon funeral. Yeah, Bill Clinton said at the uh, during the funeral, uh, let uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, let the time end when we judge Richard Nixon on anything but his complete legacy. And uh, I think, well, first of all, I think only uh, Bill Clinton, of course, is hoping someone says that about him as well one day. <laughs> but but I think um, uh, what this book does, this is not a book, um, and uh, this book and our next volume that's uh, for Nixon or against Nixon. As we say, it's unedited, it's unfiltered, it's unvarnished. We want to put the record out there because it's been obscured for so many years and let people come to their own conclusions. But I say uh, um, give Nixon credit where he's due credit and, and let's criticize where we think criticism is due as well. One of the things that is so fascinating about this is the way in which new information and new insights and new understanding of all of this keeps emerging from these tapes. As I said in the introduction, in many ways, these tapes and Richard Nixon is is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's the gift that we'll keep giving, because out of the 3,700 hours of recordings, only around 3,000 hours have been released today into 2014. So we have these seven or 800 hours, which have a variety of restrictions across them, some for national security, some for privacy of a living person who could have been mentioned or part of a conversation. Some of it are materials that, that, that every former president has a right to object to, um, a privacy of the president, of the first family, and there are some political sort of gray areas there. So these tapes will continue to come out a, a drip at a time over the coming years, and we'll continue to learn things, even about events that are 40 or 50 years old. From a political perspective, one of the things that these tapes in this period that, that you write about reveal is his attitudes towards his predecessors, towards Kennedy specifically and even towards Johnson. Uh, yeah, I think there's there was a book that came out uh, last year called The President's Club, and it's it's true that uh, there's a there is a sort of special club for all those who reach the nation's highest office. You have um, uh, you have a new respect for those who came before you, even if you were critical of them during your campaign. And so clearly Nixon has respect. He's colleagues with Johnson, with Kennedy. Um, he had he had known them for decades by the time Nixon had become president. But he's also uh, uh, very interested in gossip related to them. He's willing to blame them privately, not publicly, but privately on these tapes. And for example, the Kennedys. Uh, uh, he, I think it's a really 
really a mixture of admiration and disgust that he has towards John, Jack Kennedy and, and, and Ted Kennedy, and he's particularly interested in Ted Kennedy's whereabouts, his, his uh, sex life, his uh, social activities. Uh, so uh, all this is on the tapes, as, as well as the substantive policy-making decisions. One of the things that comes together in listening to these tapes is this strange nexus with Nixon between policy and character and the way in which one shapes the other and vice versa. Talk a little bit about that, Luke. Yeah, I think it was um, uh, Ronald Reagan who had much more of an emphasis on sort of character as king. Um, but here we see uh, Richard Nixon. He's constantly concerned about his own image. On the one hand, he's disappointed that, in his view, the, the Kennedys had so effortlessly gotten out this image of, of, of Camelot that had uh, pervaded politics, not just uh, Jack Kennedy, but, uh, but uh, also Bobby Kennedy and, and Ted Kennedy, and it's an image that, that lives on today. Um, Nixon was very concerned about, why can't I get a similar image out? Can't this image of courage get out? Can't this image of toughness? You know, after all, he was negotiating with our arch enemies during the, during the Cold War. The Chinese, the North Vietnamese, with uh, with the Russians, and why couldn't a little bit more of that get out? After all, he he thought privately, my predecessor certainly didn't have the nerve or the courage to negotiate uh, with these enemies. So Nixon was concerned about his own image personally for a domestic audience and for an international audience, and he was concerned very much as the nation was in almost full retreat out of Southeast Asia. He was also concerned about the nation of the image uh, and the image that we project. project abroad to both our allies uh, and our enemies in terms of uh, uh, the U.S. maintaining its position of superiority and strength in the world. It's interesting that those two things relate as you talk about his attitude towards his predecessors and, and how he envisioned projecting America's image, that they both had to do with this sense of image, of projection, whether it was Nixon, how he saw himself, how he wanted to project himself, or how he saw the country wanting to project himself, that he was very, very caught up in this at, at really a critical time in the way image and media and perception was changing in the world. Yeah, he was, and, and I think ultimately, it, hearing enough of these tapes, you, you realize that um, he was never going to achieve what he wanted to regarding his image because we have to remember this was one of the most secretive White Houses in our nation's history. Now, I think over time the opposite effect will have happened um, because of these tapes and uh, the number of people studying and listening. We don't have recordings like this for any other presidency in the history of the nation. And so ironically, the Nixon presidency will, will over time become the most transparent and the most studied. <laughs> Um, but it's because we, but we didn't know that then when these recordings are being made, and because Nixon was based uh, so much of his presidency was based on secrecy, and limiting the number of people who knew about negotiations with the Chinese. You know, all these episodes where Nixon was courageous and tough. I think it was just a false idea he had that these I, these messages of his of his image could ever get out because to to get this image out, more people needed to know how he was conducting these policies, and that just was incongruent with the policies themselves. Talk about his views of, of the Soviet Union at the time and Brezhnev in particular. 
Well, he had known most of the Soviet leaders for a long time. I mean, when he appeared in Moscow in, I think it was 1959, for the kitchen debate with Khrushchev, um, in the background of the picture is a young Brezhnev. So this is someone they had known each other off and on, um, certainly since he was vice, Nixon was vice president under Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s. Nixon was someone who thought, that the Russians, as compared to the Chinese, were a little bit too doctrinaire. Um, they were more caught up in maintaining sort of ideological purity. You know, the Chinese, on the other hand, were much more willing to uh, undermine the Russians, uh, to go against a lot of the public image. Uh, the Chinese had projected an image that the U.S. was sort of enemy number one during the Cold War and continued to project that image from the Chinese government, even while they, we, the iceberg uh, in, in relations between China and the U.S. was thawing. So I think Nixon saw the Russians as, as sort of less interesting, less exotic, um, less trust, trustworthy, and really ultimately had less to offer uh, us, uh, the United States and the Nixon White House, than the Chinese did. And, and so I think that's when there's a certain point where you see in the tapes where the priorities become reversed. First, it's let's have a breakthrough with Russia and see if we can do anything with the Chinese. Then it becomes things are moving really well with the Chinese. Let's flip the priorities, do China first, and see if we can use China as leverage to improve things with the Russians. There is also the, the sense and the question, the degree to which Nixon's opening to China and, and everything that followed had an impact internally and domestically within China that sped up its openness to the West and sped up its development. Yeah, one of the things that also comes through in the book um, along these lines is, um, is Nixon, um, Nixon is given the credit today for the opening in relations, which then was formalized under President Carter when we finally had embassies in Washington and Beijing and the exchange of ambassadors. But um, this was the idea of improving relations was not a new one. This was not Nixon's idea. He had written about it uh, in 1967 in Foreign Affairs. Other political leaders had uh, ideas along these lines. What, what was new for Nixon was that he was the first person to have the idea and believe in it and have the ability to take action on it. And that's really what he did. Um, but even then, the Chinese deserve uh, half the credit, at least, as well, besides Nixon. Because what you see, um, we all know the term ping-pong diplomacy, uh, the visit of our ping-pong team, first to Tokyo and then to be invited to Beijing. And at the time, Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai said um, to, said to the ping-pong team, and he made sure the Western media reported this accurately, he said, this visit begins a whole new era in relations between the United States and China. And meanwhile, you have Nixon Kissinger in the Oval Office saying, are you kidding me? He said that to a ping-pong team? Because, of course, Nixon and Kissinger were the only ones permitted to have breakthroughs, and they wanted to make sure they got credit for these things. So I think the idea wasn't new, um, but Nixon was the first to take action on it. But even when he took action on it, he was even surprised by how quickly the Chinese also wanted this breakthrough in relations. As you listen to these tapes and you hear Nixon over and over again, one of the things that are the most re repellent, really, about Nixon at that time well, I mean, certainly, there's there's plenty of uh, language here that to 2014 years we would call sexist, racist, bigoted, anti-Semitic, and plenty of things that were out of bounds, you know, even for Nixon's own time in the early 70s as a man born in, in 1913. Um, so there's plenty of, of that. There's plenty of backstabbing of people. Uh, one minute he's he's uh, he's um, 
uh, collegio with them, and the next minute they walk out of the office and he's not. You know, one of the most interesting things about working on the tapes over the last 10 years was word spread quickly among the people who worked for Nixon, who mainly at the time were young, 20-something, 30-somethings, but since have become household names to many of us. Uh, uh, George Bush, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Shultz, Henry Kissinger, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney. You know, many of these people got their start in government uh, during the Nixon White House. And a number of them came to me, and, and not only when they were writing their memoirs or just interested for their own files, they wanted copies of what they said to Nixon on the recording system so they could just have a record of that. And it, what's interesting is some of them even said, and I also would like to know, when I left the room, what did he say about me behind my back? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think um, uh, they also knew this aspect of Richard Nixon as, as we've come to understand it. You know, Nixon is very much like a prism. You can you can see him and the light kind of shine through a certain way, but as soon as you turn the prism ever so slightly, the light comes through and projects a totally different image. Luke Nichter, the book is The Nixon Years, 1971 to 1972. It's just out from Houghton Mifflin. Luke, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 